0: Do you you edit your own podcast, or do you you have somebody do it?
1: Uh, So, my co-host is actually an audio engineer, so he loves playing with that kind of stuff. That's handy. My
2: co-host is an audio engineer, too. (laughs) 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 Welcome to The Geek & Review, the podcast focused on innovative and creative ideas in the legal industry.
0: I'm Marlene Gabeauer, And I'm Greg Lambert. So, as our listeners know, and as you just mentioned, Marlene, we focus on innovative and creative ideas. And today's guest is right in our wheelhouse. Adam Sow joins us later to discuss his new book, The Creativity Playbook for Lawyers Strategies for the Business of Legal Practice. And we break down Adam's playbook and discuss how implementing creative strategies, including diversity, interdisciplinary thinking as well as design thinking and other practices can actually make your career fun who knew that the legal industry could be fun Marlene
2: yeah I I didn't know that the legal industry could be fun but uh, Adam Adam shows us how so stick around for that discussion but for now let's get to this week's information inspirations all
0: right Marlene you I've I've warned you that this was coming, so my inspiration, my first inspiration, has inspired me to go on a bit of a rant.
2: Well, I always love a good rant.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so buckle up. We're we're about to go on one.
2: All right, I'm sitting down.
0: Um, The American lawyer put out an article this week called, The Legal Assistance of Tomorrow May Not Look Like Assistance at All. And it was co-written by Zach Warren and Victoria Hudgens, both of whom are tech writers and are typically really good at what they do. In this article, however, there is what I think is an attempt by the writers to be funny, but the humor lands really flat and stands on these, these old stereotypical concepts of what it is law librarians do at firms. So to set the stage here, let me just read you the first paragraph. As COVID-19 disrupted law offices across the world over the past year, attorneys learned to work in a new way, on Zoom calls, in Slack and Microsoft team chats, and crucially, with spouses, children, and pets as co-workers instead of legal secretaries and law librarians. And because FIDO isn't particularly adept at data entry— Many lawyers also found their plates full with administrative tasks that used to be handled by others. Okay, so that was the that was the opening paragraph. South, that was the, the opening story. salvo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so and and I understand that this was supposed to be humorous, but you know, WTF, <laughs> Zach and Victoria? <laughs> the, a logical reading of that equates secretaries with spouses and children and pets with law librarians and i'm not going to speak for the secretaries but i will step up and talk for the law librarians that we are not the lawyers workplace children or pets and we are not legal assistants either law librarians went through this type of crap in the early 2000s when the everything is on the internet articles started coming out That cost almost every corporate legal law librarian their jobs at the time. Law firm librarians adjusted to fit the needs of the law firms and focused on balancing the resources online and print materials and began more of the knowledge management and competitive intelligence aspects of research and analytics. Then again in 2008 came the consolidation of resources and law librarians once again adjusted and began showing attorneys the value of court analytics and started bringing in tools to continue the streamlining of the attorney's practice and to show them how to do more of the research themselves because we made things accessible. So over the past year, the IT department for law firms have and justifiably so, have been patted on the back because we were able to go to remote operations from when we left the office on Friday, March 13th, and when we fired up our laptops from home on Monday, March 16th. But one of the things that gets overlooked in this transformation was the fact that lawyers maintain access to their legal research and analytic tools as well. In fact, law librarians negotiated and fought with vendors to gain access to all of those print materials that we couldn't get the lawyers to give up over the past decade. And we found ways to provide ebook or online access to those materials while the offices were shut down. So I'm going to borrow from a scene in Party Girl where the librarian tells Parker Posey's character what it means to be a librarian and I'll adjust it for this situation. So most law librarians and firms have advanced degrees, a master's in library science and or a JD, and some of the subject matter experts that I know have LLMs or PhDs. We are typically billable as well, and while most administrative departments are completely overhead, the library's researchers are billing their time, typically at a much lower rate than even a first-year associate, and the return on the investment of their time is pretty darn profitable for the firm because the cost of the researchers are lower. And it's lower for the client because we are faster at obtaining the information than an associate who rarely ever handles that issue a library team is there to help the firm understand the information resources it needs. It negotiates the cost of those resources. It balances the desire of the individual attorney on what they need on an individual practice versus the need of the overall practice area and versus the need of the overall firm. So we are also the primary reason that attorneys have access to legal news resources like the American Lawyer where they get to read articles like this one. So we teach the lawyers how to help themselves so they don't have to come to us for basic research. The fact that the pandemic forced some attorneys to finally learn this self-help is a great thing. And it's not something that law librarians are seeing as a bad thing we don't want that work nor should we be doing that work we are there to do more advanced research or to help when the lawyers are in a bind and need legal information experts to show them how to find and analyze the information they need in an efficient manner so for any other legal reporters out there who want to write about how law librarians are legal assistants or equate us with the lawyers kids and dogs i highly suggest that you reach out to me or any of my peers in law firms and get a better understanding of what it is we do and the value that we bring to the firms and to this industry all right that's the end of my rant
2: well first of all, I have to say this, this is a real treat because we don't always get Greg to have a rant. All right. And so this is, this is, this is, this is a good thing. And this is a, this is a unusual thing. So really we should, we should just enjoy this while we can. Uh, my comment on this is, you know, I will say that it definitely and justifiably got credit for getting everybody up and going on, on zoom and having things working. Absolutely. But you are spot on where the firms don't really understand that what the librarian team has done, it not only in making sure that the online access to the information sources were, you know, were still available, but also the scrambling that had to be done in terms of canceling a lot of print so that we weren't paying for things that we weren't using or shifting that cost to online things that we might not have had before. So there was a lot of behind the scenes work that was happening there that I, you know, I honestly don't think a lot of people know. And, you know, this is, I'm I'm glad that you've mentioned it because, you know, hopefully the people that are listening to this will be like, Oh, okay. You know, so there's some other heroes here too. So here's another slap at librarians. Uh, (laughs)
0: As if one wasn't enough.
2: <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, uh, you know, among other controversial aspects of, of my inspiration. So, remember looking at the law school rankings in the U.S. and World Report to see where your potential schools were, and then later where your alma mater fell. Mm. Forget about it. <laughs> the popular law school rankings have been modified for the third time in two weeks. Which, of course, is making the rankings light up like the board of the New York Stock Exchange. (laughs) Everything's moving around. Okay, get ready data and statistic nerds. Here goes. U.S. News most recently removed a controversial metric regarding the number of credit hours taught by law librarians and shifted the 0.25% weight that the metric was given over to the bar pass rate indicator. As a result, the total weight given to the law library measures in the overall rankings dropped from 2% to 1.75%, while the weight given to the bar pass rate increased from 2% to 2.25%. So, nine of the schools in the top 30 saw their rankings change <laughs> as a result of that. Now, the f- initial change that US News made also revolved around law libraries. In this case, it was the number of hours the law libraries open to students, which accounts for 0.25% of a school's overall ranking. A large number of schools were inaccurately credited with fewer open hours than they should have been. Several law schools noticed this problem when they combed through the early data. Now this is important. Schools can pay US News $15,000 annually for access to the granular data behind the rankings, and they alerted US News to the problem. Once that error was corrected, the overall ranks of more than 30 schools changed. Now, US News also decided last week to postpone the release of what was to be the first ever standalone diversity ranking, which was the source of a lot of criticism from legal <laughs> academics. Yeah. But, but listen to this seriously. The first version of that ranking Excluded Asian students from the calculation of underrepresented groups. I'm just going to pause and let that sink in. Yeah. After complaints from law schools, US News added Asian students and released a new diversity ranking. But <laughs> deans then realized that the second version did not include students of more than one race. And that got everybody crazy about all of it. And then U.S. News decided to pull it and to try again next year. <laughs> I know. Critics say that this whole sitch highlights how meaningless the rankings are and the very arbitrary nature of what is measured.
0: Yeah, it's it's the whole thing. The fact that there's a private industry news it's a outlet that... That, that's doing this, that, you know. That, it's a that total just farce, to and
2: they're getting paid for it. <laughs> <laughs> it's like by the schools. It's a farce. Ignore uh, that stuff, all right. kids. Yeah.
0: yeah, all right, all right, all right. I need a palate cleanser after those inspirations. Okay. <laughs> all right, wah, so wah, it wah. is. It is April. This this will roll out April first, um, and that means baseball season is back. Yay. And while the Cincinnati Reds may be one of the worst teams in Major League Baseball, they are number one when it comes to the most (laughs) hackable passwords. Darren Siegel from from Spec Ops Software runs through a list of teams, of Major League Baseball teams, that are most used by fans for their computer passwords. So, again, he stresses, you should not use the name of your team as your password. (laughs) It's okay to root for them, but don't use them as your password. And, and Marlene, just so you know, the Houston Astros—they they were number fourteen uh, on the most popular team passwords. Well, the bottom three were the Oakland A's, the Toronto Blue Jays. Sorry about that, Zena Applebaum up in Toronto, and the Arizona Diamondbacks are the least used for passwords.
2: So. <laughs> so now here's a question. So could. Like if you're the Astros, could you use the Reds, or could you write Blue Jays instead? And then no, would that the, be any better? the way the
0: hackers the way the hackers do it is they try all of the teams, and mm-hmm. so it, and so, see if they work. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. Well, okay.
0: Well, you know, people are told to use a password you can remember, <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah. and and you know, and and so they do, and and everybody can remember it too. <laughs> So to wrap up Women's History Month, I want to share with you a couple of great podcasts. One from our friends, Brian Parker and John Greenblatt, who do the podcast, The Law in Black and White. Uh, One of their recent guests, and I'm going to, let's hope I get this right, Veronique Goy-Vinhues, founder of Equal Salary, is working with companies on certification of equal pay for the same work. I'm pausing again. Yeah, what a breath of fresh air this is. (laughs) Kudos to Ms. Vienhuis. An interesting point Veronique made was that some companies have all kinds of motivators for making the change. Some want to do the right thing and some realize this is good for business. My feeling is as long as they get there, it's good. Mm -hmm. But one thing they all fear is their baseline being discussed more publicly. Now, I understand this. It could impact business and staffing quite detrimentally, but I also know it could also present a company as woke and compassionate and ethical and being honest about correcting wrongs.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It was really cool because it's like a lead certification that you do on your buildings, but for your salaries to have a third party come in and evaluate you. It's It's a great idea.
2: Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. The second podcast is for true crime buffs who also want to understand more about Indigenous women and the challenges they face. Stolen: The Search for Jermaine is available only on Spotify and highlights the case of missing person Jermaine Charlo, a 23-year-old Indigenous woman who left a bar, walked down an alley, and was never seen again. Connie Walker, who is Cree, is the reporter covering the story. She's no stranger to true crime having led the CBS investigative podcast, Finding Cleo, which explored the disappearance of Cleopatra Semanganis Nicotine, a nine-year-old who went missing from her Saskatchewan First Nations community. I listened to 1.5 episodes of The Search for Germaine, and I am totally drawn in by the crime, but also by the different voices telling the story of how this is a regular part of life for Indigenous women. Please check it out.
0: Yeah, that sounds like a good one. All right, well, that wraps up this week's Information Inspirations.
2: For those of us who went to law school, there wasn't a lot of instructional material around for creative thinking. Today's guest believes that creativity is a vital process in a person's legal career, and he recently published a book that lays out the concepts of creativity and why we each need our own playbook to help us build creative processes in our professional activities.
0: We'd like to welcome Adam Sow, founder at Philosophy and the author of the new book, The Creative Playbook for Lawyers.
1: Adam, thanks for taking the time to talk with us on The Geek & Review. Yeah, thank you for having me, Greg and Marlene. My pleasure
0: so as soon as i saw the title of your book i knew that we had just had to get you onto the show because we based this podcast on the idea of innovation and creativity in the legal industry would you mind just telling us a little bit about your background and your work there at at philosophy and why you decided to write an entire book based on the idea of, of a creativity playbook for lawyers
1: sure i'd be happy to i guess i'll start at the very beginning in college actually So I started in undergrad at our business school. I was very fascinated by the mechanisms that drive businesses at a greater market level. After one semester, I actually decided to switch out to study philosophy full time, which is a huge shock to the system. And all my friends are like, Adam, you're really crazy. Why are you doing that? But I realized that to really come up with really cool ideas that differ from the norm, you really have to stretch your imagination and your thinking. And philosophy deals with very abstract concepts and it really taught me to approach things from very different vantage points, Um, and I had the opportunity to really dive into some courses on the arts in design, and that was the first time I encountered the concept of design thinking, which became very foundational for me in how I approached problem solving. And then after my time in undergrad, I was in commercial real estate for a bit um, and then pivoted to legal practice, and I joined Penn Law in Philly doing a JD program and it was really fun there because I got to really explore the differences between different practice areas and Penn is very focused on developing corporate attorneys so I took 12 plus corporate law programs and took classes at Wharton um, and also the engineering school to really diversify my approach.
0: Yeah I was going to ask if you if you took some, something outside the law school because mm-hmm. that seems to be kind of a theme in your experiences.
1: Yeah, um, I really appreciate the interdisciplinary approach um, to education and academia as much as I do the interdisciplinary approach in practice. So the big stepping stone for me was actually taking a class in the engineering school as a law student. I'm terrible at math, so initially I was like, oh my gosh, is there going to be a math heavy course. It was also an undergraduate course. Um, But I'm like, you know, it's on high tech startups. Let me like check it out. Talked to a friend of mine who took the class and he said it was wonderful. So I was like, okay, I'll check it out. Learned a ton about building tech companies. um, And we heard from really cool speakers, um, including some very senior uh, VCs in the valley, um, as well as some great entrepreneurs at some fintech firms and uh, took that experience with me actually when I started to found my own venture. Um, so it was a nice parallel between my academic training outside of the law school, in the law school and my interest for this new venture. So once I joined practice as a corporate attorney here in DC, worked with Skadden for a bit and then Covington after that um, in the corporate practice doing M&A transaction at work and SEC reg.
0: But uh, so why, why the book? Why decide to to write the book itself?
1: Yeah, so one of the things that I noticed in practice, especially with a business background, is that I thought things were done very much the same way that they've always been done in practice. Um, And I thought it's really helpful to share different best practices in creative problem solving from the business side of things, the design part of things, and especially part of the startup culture to really see how attorneys can really mix up their day-to-day practice to drive more efficiencies for their teams, their organizations, and also just to better serve their clients. A key principle in design thinking is to be human-centric and client-focused. And some of the attorneys just tend to really focus in on the substantive subject matter of the law versus the practice of actually advising their clients and trying to find ways to make that interaction more smooth and more enjoyable. Not to say that the experiences aren't enjoyable, right, but to really push the envelope to the next iteration.
0: They say lawyer burnout for a reason. So I I imagine that adding some creativity into the into the process, you know, and we love checklist and we love being able to go through and have some structure. It may sound a little, uh, I guess, counterintuitive to have, uh, structured creativity, but I think that's kind of, kind of one of the ways that you, you lay out in, in the book.
1: Yeah, so the the structure of the book, if if helpful to kind of share with your listeners, is um, it's in a playbook format such that you can actually reference different creative problem-solving principles as stand-alone chapters, Um, and it was intentionally designed to be a quick read because attorneys are so busy, they don't want to sit down and read a 400-page anthology on creativity. I know that my reading plummeted once I joined practice just because I was reading every single day, and I just didn't have the mental capacity to work through another heavy text. So this was designed as something that someone could just flip through a page, flip through a chapter and say, oh, this is really interesting. How do you think like a founder and translate that over to practice? How do you apply interdisciplinary thinking to practice um, and other techniques that I discuss? Um, and they're all one-off, just like a academic reference or legal reference. Um, and internally, there's you know internal references to different things in case people want to learn more or get more background in a particular area that I touch on.
2: Well, first of all, I want to say I'm glad that there is life after uh, philosophy. <laughs> as, <laughs> as a former poli sci major, it's like I'm glad to hear that. That's awesome, and I really love what you're you're saying about the interdisciplinary practice. That seems to have been going by the wayside a bit in terms of of education and for you know more practical endeavors. But uh, you know, clearly, I think you're you're a um, you know, you're an argument to, to be had for, you know, having interdisciplinary options and, and having that impact and having that affect your, you know, your ability to come up with sort of creative ways of doing things. In the book, you first lay out a foundation to build upon when it comes to creativity. So, you know, you talk about open-mindedness, structuring creativity and innovation. And, you know, again, that sounds a lot like what we talk about here on the podcast. And finally, creative problem solving strategies. Now, uh, I don't know about you, but these do not sound like the things that I was taught in law school. <laughs> so, so how do you how do you drill these concepts into a lawyer's brain?
1: That's a wonderful question, Marlene. It's definitely difficult to do because nobody was trained to do this. So, part of it is really trying to get them to have a mindset shift from a very conservative strategic approach to practice to being more open minded to trying something new. And that's very much the first step when I speak with attorneys and even law students is that there is something else outside of your legal practice. Um, And once you can start to have this more open discussion that you you can learn a lot from the business sector or how consultants, doctors, um, or investors manage their day-to-day business and how they advise their clients and pull that over to legal advisory work. Um, because there's a lot of deep structural analogies between these different industries and practices and it's very important that we learn from each other because everyone else is in these different industries and legal practice tends to just be behind the curve a little bit so having these open discussions is one of the first steps the second step is to actually get into more of a rigid working environment with them where we actually go through trainings um, and workshops where we run through a number of different simulations um, and get them to really stretch their understanding of what it means to be one an attorney and two a problem solver Um, so really just opening the discussion and then just throwing them into the deep end
2: so do you use any sort of user-centered design sort of concepts in terms of working with attorneys in terms of of how they interact with with clients and how they can be more creative in working with clients? So sort of the user, um, you know, user being the main focus.
1: Yes, that's a wonderful question. Um, So especially with working on developing more creative attorneys and law students, focusing on the end user, being the attorneys or the law students is very very important Um, but to drill down a level even further uh, their end user is their clients if they're a practitioner uh, or themselves actually if they're a law student so getting them to think about you know this is more than just analyzing what the letter of the law says or the differences in case law interpreting such certain statutes um, or drafting contract after contract it's actually thinking about the relationship between what we are Producing as a attorney, as an attorney, or um, as a law student, what we're studying, and then translating that over into how we actually counsel our clients through something. So it's very much focused on the end user in mind.
0: So Adam, um, let me let me just kind of back up on the book here because I think a lot, especially on the transactional side of lawyers, they understand what a playbook is. It could be due diligence contracts. And so can you just kind of give me the big picture of what you mean by having a creative playbook, creativity playbook?
1: Sure, happy to. Um, so in the grand scheme of things, this creativity playbook really serves as the initial introduction slash one-stop shop to really get people more open to thinking about their practice creatively. Um, And I provide 11 different creative problem-solving techniques that attorneys and law students can review on a one-off basis, chapter by chapter. They don't need to read it chronologically. And it just gives them that, overview of how you can actually strategize through different problems with these different techniques. Very similar to a playbook in football or soccer to draw a sports analogy where you can flip through and see how this play is run um, or how this has worked out in the past. Um, So these are all practices that have worked really well in these parallel industries like finance and consulting as well as in a big law setting or law firm setting as well.
2: So one of your chapters is titled Develop Diverse Teams. Um, how do diverse teams help in the creativity playbook?
1: Diversity, I guess to begin with, has such a broad definition um, and it's becoming increasingly important, um, not that it never was, but more more present in our everyday lives as practitioners um, and firms are taking more Interest um, in driving DNI through their ranks, which is great to see. Um, but diversity has such a broad definition that whoever you talk to, they're going to have a different view on what that means. Much of the discussion today focuses on ethnic and gender diversity, for instance. Um, in the past, it may have been on experiential diversity, um, with trying to bring people with different skill sets. But there's also a different echelon of differences and diversity that we can drive, even from uh, accessibility or disability. Um, I actually spoke with a a a former GC a couple of months ago who was completely blind and he was just an inspiration because he had to do everything from an auditory basis because he couldn't read anything, Um, but he was able to elevate up to the status of a general counsel of a major power company, which was just very incredible to see. So being able to drive diverse teams, there's a number of studies done uh, that show how diversity increases the creativity of teams and even drive the bottom line, which as we are seeing in California with a lot of these um, requirements of having at least one female board director, um, because the studies and research show that having more diverse candidates and people at the table help drive much better bottom line results um, and really important initiatives to drive moving forward.
0: You kind of touched on this, but obviously, when we're thinking diversity, especially right now, we tend to automatically go to race, ethnicity, and culture. But one of the things that you also talk about is interdisciplinary thinking as well. So how does that type of thinking help with the creativity?
2: Do we have any specific examples?
1: Yeah. So interdisciplinary thinking is one of those things that when attorneys become practitioners from law school, they tend to hyper-focus in on their practice area, at least in the initial instance. Um, and it's kind of funny because if they were former accountants, former consultants, former uh, like real estate brokers or what have you, they tend to kind of put that in the back of their mind and they don't carry that forward and share those experiences with their legal teams. Do you think that's because that's how they're trained in law school? I think it's not very much addressed in many of the law schools that I've seen thus far. Some schools are trying to drive a more design thinking approach to education. And uh, I'm very fortunate that my alma mater, Penn, recently created the Future of the Profession Initiative, which is really focused on driving this creative mindset in attorneys and how to really embrace an interdisciplinary approach to developing the next generation of attorneys. And I think that with the increased advent of programs like these, I really hope that the training of law students helps translate more effective attorneys moving forward. But I do think part of it is a training issue. And secondly, it's just not really within the culture to look outside of your law firm, once you're in a firm.
2: We want want you to do it our way.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And it's one of those things where a lot of the other major businesses out there outside of legal industry, they love bringing in people from different, fields and industries and practices um, because of their prior experiences. And they want them to apply them to the business. And Steve Jobs is famous for saying, you know, he hires uh, really smart people, not so he can tell them what to do, but so that they can take their own initiative and make a difference. Um, So a lot of my friends in practice, some of them were ex-Goldman people, um, very, very intelligent people. But the question is, how do you apply that moving forward? And I was fortunate enough to apply a couple of times my real estate experience to two or three deals that I was working on um, just by raising my hand and saying, hey, I actually touched on the business side of this. Can I, can I help out and offer my insights? And that actually led to some really cool developments down the line, uh, driving a couple of efficiencies um, for a practice group that I wasn't actually initially involved in. And another time just really helping facilitate the review.
2: Yeah, I think you're spot on with with that. Um, You know, I know in the past, you know, I think both Greg and I have like, let's hire people who are not necessarily, you know, the status quo. You know, you might want to look at people that are kind of outside that scope because they do bring something different um, to the team. And, And that's important because it gives you another way of thinking about things.
1: Exactly, exactly.
2: So we've had a number of guests, including, I think, at least the last two who were, who were adamant about the idea that the practice of law and the business of law are not the same. But we expect lawyers to just figure that out as they go and put lawyers in charge who may be great at the practice of law, but not at the business side. So how do you think we should address and change the structure of the legal industry?
1: Wonderful question. Uh, To answer your first point, I think it's very much a training-based solution. And much of that, I think, will actually start on the law school front. Um, As I had alluded to earlier, there are a few number of schools that are trying to work on training the next generation of attorneys, um, Penn being one of them. And I think that once law students are equipped with these tools in tandem with their normal approach to reading cases, writing briefs analyzing law, they can actually bring this forward once they start as junior associates. And unfortunately, there's a huge temporal component to this. So uh, these associates will obviously have to stay in practice long enough to make partner, become part of the decision making entities such that the culture of some of these firms starts to shift forward slow, but still making progress. Um, So it definitely takes time to affect this change. Um, I think it starts at the law school level so that once these junior attorneys enter in, some of the partnership also begins to see that there is this new interest kind of brewing from the ranks um, and that they would also help to respond and address these changes as well.
2: That sounds great, but I wonder if we're raising this generation of, of creative thinkers, and we're starting to see this, this We're start well, I won't even say we're starting to see it, but we've seen it where, you know, people are saying, okay, I am not finding you know, what I need in, you know, a law firm structure, and I'm going out and, you know, starting my own, you know, starting my own firm or starting my own company, or looking for different solutions. I don't know, is is it too late for firms or, you know, are people that are creative already sort of moving outside of that, that space?
1: That's a really cool question. Um, so thank you for raising that point. I think that there's going to be two different evolutions of this. So one, I do think that um, a number of the larger firms are going to be part of that change. They do have the resources, they are incumbents, um, and I think it's going to be difficult to kind of transition off of them. Um, Sort of like how IBM used to be such a huge innovator, and they're still here today. Um, Though they may not be at the forefront of it, they still are able to adapt and pivot and respond to these changes. Secondly, You brought up a wonderful point that a lot of these creative individuals may want to start their own firms. Um, And what we see on the West Coast is people leaving these tech firms, starting new companies left and right to push the envelope, and then try and create better ways of practice, whether on the tech industry, hospitality with Airbnb, transportation with Uber, Lyft, um, and all these different tech coming out of there. I think the same thing will hopefully emerge on the legal front where there's gonna be groups of very talented attorneys that wanna come together to form a different legal model of providing legal counsel. And that'll be really exciting and fun to see because if they are able to provide results and advice at equal quality or even better quality at a fraction of the cost or more efficiently, um, clients will start to recognize that and pivot over there. Because at the end of the day, a lot of legal service tends to be interchangeable, even at the highest echelons, um, because we are looking at the same law and we have very similar experiences. Um, So these minor differences are going to yield great changes moving forward.
0: Yeah, that kind of reminds me of the story I I read recently where apparently in Utah, there's the first uh, law service that's not owned by lawyers uh, called Law on Call, Um, So I think one one of the things, Adam, that we'll have to be careful of is because we think this is a pretty protected industry, but we're seeing cracks now where we're allowing others, uh, more startups, uh, mentalities, creativity, creative people coming into the market. So uh, we're not just having to worry about our our peers, but also all the other uh, creative types that are out there as well. So.
1: Yeah, that's a great point, and um, you know, for most people out there, a lot of the legal advice they need can be answered on Google. Um, and I hate to say that, but it's so true. Um, and I think there is something to be said about like the democratization of legal services, um, especially with how, like, fintech, for instance. For the longest time, everyone thought how broker systems and investments were very formalized. In Wall Street, but now we have Robin Hood and a lot of these great FinTech developments that make it very easy and accessible for people to get into the market. There are definitely negative externalities of that. And I think there <laughs> are risks. Um, as with any new ventures as you were alluding to in terms of having non practitioners own um legal advisory firms. So there are definitely challenges to, to work through there.
0: So one of the last things that you wrote in the book is that the creativity playbook can help make working as a lawyer and with other legal professionals fun. So what is it about the, the creativity playbook that, that makes it fun?
2: Yeah, we're taking notes. <laughs> <laughs> so,
1: I, you know, This question of fun is very important for attorneys. I think if you were to go out and survey um, 10 attorneys, 100 attorneys, uh, 9 out of the 10 or 90% of the 100 are going to say that they're not having fun with what they're doing. And that's something that's very sad to to not only see but hear. Um, And it's one of those paradoxes that a lot of people that enter practice think about leaving practice um, within a number of years. And it's one of the things I think if people had more fun um, and really enjoyed working with their teams and advising their clients, the longevity would be increased, burnout would be decreased, um, and just team morale would be heightened. For me, I actually had a wonderful time both at Skadden and Covington and have really great friends from both, some of which um, came to my wedding. And it was one of those things where we developed very lifelong friendships there. And I had fun. And one of the things that I was able to do was create a more balanced work life, um, if that makes any sense for big law attorneys. Um, I was very heavily engaged, for instance, in different aspects with both firms outside of just um, M&A or or corporate work. So getting involved in things like firm citizenship, I got to work on different things with people in different offices, um, really create programs that spoke to our interests and develop a community. Um, And to the extent that we had friends that would stay late just to provide moral support, if we had a deal closing, it was 1 AM in the morning, we'd be there to make sure that we had friends and support. Um, And it was actually a a really fun time and just taking that perspective that there's more out there than just what's in front of you on your desk, in your computer, or that case or brief you're writing. It just, it's a very healthy perspective and it makes things more enjoyable. So thinking about the creative ways to approach practice um, can hopefully help individuals see more vantage points and um, have fun with it.
2: Well, that sounds great. Adam Sal, thank you very much for talking with us. Uh, where can listeners pick up or download your book?
1: Yeah, so they can actually find it on Amazon. Um, they can either search my name, Adam Sal, spelled T as in Tom, S-A-O, um, or just search for the Creativity Playbook for Lawyers, Strategies for the Business of Legal Practice. They can also find me on my website at www.atphilosophy.com.
0: All right. And one, one last thing you were telling us before we started recording that you have have your own podcast. It's not illegal, but uh, give us some info and how, how to look for that.
1: Oh, sure. Um, so I did start a podcast that is not legally focused called Double Agent. And this is a fun thing that one of my college buddies and I came together to um, put on. And it really focuses on highlighting individuals with really unexpected hobbies. So we do have a couple of attorneys on there, though not legal focused, that talk about their interest in cooking and exploring with different culinary cuisines. Um, I talk about my passion for watch collecting, not at a fancy level, but very, you know, normal stuff. And we have like um, agile coaches talking about different martial arts. We have some really fun um, topics about how an archivist for the National Archives talks about wrestling and how he started a whole wrestling podcast. So it's just a fun thing to get engaged with, especially during these crazy, crazy times. Um, and that can just be found on Spotify or Apple podcasts. Um and it's called Double Agent. Well, Adam Sao thank you again for uh, talking with us. Thank you. It was my pleasure.
0: Well, Marlene, I was glad we had a chance to uh, talk with Adam. Uh, once I saw the book, like I said at the beginning, there it, it just really called out to me. So I took a chance, got him on the, on the call, and uh, I, I thought uh, he had a lot of good insights on ways to improve the creativity at uh, in not just the law firms, but law schools and, and others as well.
2: Yeah, I have to agree with that. It was just very interesting to to see some of the intersections, you know, just in terms of his own history and how it impacted and influenced him in terms of you know how he thinks. Mm-hmm. And I love the fact that, you know, he and others in, in law schools and you know other places are, are basically taking that type of model and and trying to trying to influence you know up and coming attorneys with that. Um, you know, I, I was like laughing to myself. I'm like, God, I wish I was a little younger just, just to kind of see where this goes, because boy, it would be so fun to work with, um, you know, folks that have that mindset. So, you know, good, good for him.
0: That, and I wish I was just a little younger. Period. (laughs) So his uh, one of one of the areas and I think this has been something that I've personally have in, have enjoyed and it's been one of one of the ways that I've really kind of kept an enthusiasm for what I do and that's the inter interdisciplinary mm-hmm. practice and that's you know bringing in people that are not just the same Yes. Um, that, that have different backgrounds different expertise different experiences and it, it really really makes a big difference and it you know it's not not just that it makes it more successful but I think that it it makes it more fun and enjoyable to do over the long term
2: yeah I mean I've, I've seen it firsthand how you know people coming from from you know with different experiences, just basically sort of watching it happen, you know, just watching them interact and, you know, watching people being like, wow, I never thought about it that way, or that's a great idea. And, and really being able to, to take learning from different disciplines and, and being able to, to apply it in your, your universe. Um, it, it, I have found that it inevitably makes, makes for better decisions and, and better working environments.
0: I agree. All right. Well, uh, once again, Adam, Sal, thank you very much for taking the time to talk with us.
2: Thank you, Adam. Before we go, we want to remind listeners to take the time to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Rate and review us as well. If you have comments about today's show or suggestions for a future show, you can reach us on Twitter at, at M or at Glambert, or you can call the Geek & Review hotline at 713 487 7270, or email us at geekandreviewpodcast at gmail.com. And as always, the music you hear is from Jerry David Desica. Thank you, Jerry.
0: Thanks, Jerry. All right, Marlene, I will talk to you later.